There have been recent developments regarding Operation Kino. Hello, and welcome to a very special Fighting in the War Room. It is Fighting in the War Room 375, Pandemic 92. It's quarter quell 19, the anniversary quell. Yay. Oh, wait, what does are that we all mean? cheering? Sorry. I thought. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're cheering for the hey. fact that it looks like the, the groundhog saw its shadow and we're in for 52 more pandemic episodes oh, of Fighting come in the on. Room. It'll be fun. Look at all the different ways we're counting our slow crawl through time we're, these days. We're definitely, we thanks to Omicron, Omicron will sponsor our new uh, call-in episode, our next call-in episode. Yeah. I mean, I get the point of, like, also being depressed that the pandemic number is going up, but the actual episode number is also going up in a way that makes me feel like I'm marching towards death, so... The vaccination numbers well, are going up, too. Come on. Like, be positive here. People yeah. are getting boosted. We're taking care of ourselves. It's a societal issue, yes, but on an individual level, you can protect yourself. I think that's key. Some... Sometimes on the march towards death, though, it's important to stop and look back. So as is tradition here on this show, ever since we started as Operation Kino and then moved into the fighting in the war room era, every 25 episodes about give or take some decimals and fractions, uh, we have a differently formatted episode where each of us uh, brings a movie under a certain theme. Uh, if you want to go to fightinginthewarroom.com and click the pull down menu, you get a uh, click on quarter quells. And here are all other 18 quarter quills uh, and get a feel for that. Uh, usually it's a way for us to talk about something about ourselves as well as about the movies that we bring. Uh, this quarter quell, we decided to loop back to the very beginnings of fighting in the war room. Uh, when even before Op Kino, when we, the, it was the Kino Katie audio blog, <laughs> I think. Uh, for the first couple of these movies uh, that we'll be reviewing. The phrase so, audio blog really just like instantly transports me back to 2010. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. <laughs> There's not a good uh, portmanteau for that. Video blog became vlog and that stuck around. Audio blog all Yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> it does not. Uh, it didn't stick around. Podcast did. Um, but we're revisiting some movies from that era. So from the very end of 2010, we're going to revisit 127 hours. Then we're going to move chronologically through Katie adding more people to the podcast and the releases in 2011. We're going to hit Limitless, which came out in the spring of 2011. Water for Elephants that came out just a few weeks later. And then finally, Super 8, which was the summer blockbuster J.J. Abrams Fair way back in 2011. Uh, and then I know Katie and I have also gone back and listened to some of those episodes. Um, so maybe you'll hear some clips for that that these guys won't hear because I'll put them in in the edit. But um, we'll have some flashing back as to how we thought about these movies if we saw them before. But let's kick it off, like I said we would, with 127 hours. This was a, like I said, Kino Katie audio blog uh, featuring Katie and... David Ehrlich. David, do you want to kick off 127 hours? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I could I think not. I'm the one who picked this one. I could out. not get it. Katie did pick this one. I could not get through. I I had to clock check out around like hour 56 wow. of this rewatch. Um, actually, I'm looking at so a, uh, an old interview. Five years ago, Film Independent interviewed the Fighting in the War Room podcast crew. 
And sure. Katie tells the, the story of that's how we were sort of born when 127 hours came out and David hated it and Patches and I loved it. And that's how it started. So she, <laughs> the origin well, story that, is ingrained in the internet and apparently you hated it at the time. So Patches, that, that tees up the obvious, which is Katie, do you still love this movie? Well, actually, oh. before, before I reveal that answer, I Googled my name in 127 hours to see if I had reviewed it, which I cannot <laughs> find, but I did find a Tumblr post from Dave Gonzalez about the end of Operation Kino and why we uh, had to change the name of the podcast. And that's a whole saga you can send this link to you guys. But he mentioned that it was actually started with a film threat article about Kevin Smith that got Patches, Katie, and I, this is written by Dave, riled up on Twitter enough to move it to Skype. She recorded it and posted it as an audio blog. The next week, David and Katie had differing views on 127 hours. I couldn't make it. So they subbed in one day for another. So Kevin Eventually, Smith, Eventually, the foursome agreed you. that, <laughs> I mean, 2010 was a he is at time the when we thought about Kevin things. Smith. I know. That was He's pre-Tusk. Omega. Um, I struggled mightily with 127 hours. Uh, the first time that I have rewatched it since 2010, for sure. Or, like, thought about it all that much. I was about to say, it, it all four like, movies yeah. we're talking about on this podcast are kind of, they were big in the moment. I mean, they were definitely... Uh, starting conversations and they had some kind of legacy, but they are inessential. Uh, I think in the I would grand argue scheme that of we're things. gonna we're gonna get to. I, I would argue two of them have had a legacy. Two of them do not exist whatsoever. But 127 hours is certainly Limitless and Super Eight. I think have had impact. Okay. Uh, outside of the films themselves, this one mo- does um, not exist. This is a blip. No, 127. I mean, it's just a complete echo. <laughs> Nominated for of best Danny picture. Boyle. Yeah, Danny Boyle won. Won the Oscar two years earlier for Slumdog Millionaire. James Franco was like this huge star at the moment. It was just like, I mean, this happens all the time at the Oscars where it's like, well, the last thing you did was a big deal. So we're just going to put this in there. And then six months later, it's like, oh, hang on. Why did we do that? Um, This is the only one I have not re-listened to our conversation about it. So I don't, I'm not going to remember like what we got into with it. But I'm sure... David thought it was like overly frenetic and kind of surface level. And I, I don't know mm. if you saw through James Franco at the time. We all had our own. I, I, de- I mean, I am definitely on. guilty of not seeing through James Franco up to and very much including the disaster artist. So and, uh, uh, you know, he was involved in wrote the the short stories that were adapted into Palo Alto, which is a movie I love. And it was obviously Coppolaized um, in the process. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my feelings of this movie have not really evolved in the last 10 years. It, I have been thinking about Danny Boyle's post-Slumdog run in regards to Andrew, uh, Adam McKay. Because it's just like sometimes, huh. and even even Nightmare Alley, Game of the Tour, like sometimes the Academy anoints someone from left field and it can have a really petrifying effect on their artistry. Uh, and that everything sort of gets this gloss of prestige to it and they get he hasn't made that many own. movies, uh, and Steve Jobs no. is good, so uh, I'm not sure which Steve movies Jobs are taking its moments. Here. But I, but I also think that like this was kind of a well, Trance was really the nadir for Trance was very uh, Danny strange. Boyle, but Trance is you know far removed from barely a came out movie. Yeah, I although Trance, <laughs> Trance, I was working at Film.com, and part of the marketing for it is they offered me a free session with a hypnotherapist. Which I remember so much more vividly than I do the movie. Did you do it? And Wait, you did it? I did it. Oh, I was like, I got to do this. And then, I may have even written a story about it, but uh, I have been because talk therapy. I sometimes too many walls are put up uh, in my head, and I've been itching to get back into hypnotherapy based on that wow, one session. France too. Um, yeah. So yeah. thanks for that, Danny Boyle. But this was like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like every 
it's just one of those cases where it, it, this is the polar opposite of how I would approach this particular story, which is not a discredit to the movie would so much. Would you ever make like, a movie of this particular no, story? No. Should we establish what did, this movie is about just in case people listening to this podcast do not know what 127 they might hours be, There might be they people might be listening to this podcast who were like eight years old. I was about to say, that is very so entirely possible. If you're looking at the very clever poster and noticing that the rocks that James Franco's <laughs> character is wedged between <laughs> are in the shape of an hourglass... Um, or make the cutout of an hourglass. It's sort of like an old lady uh, teacup. Oh yeah, I see two. I see, I see two um, women's breasts touching with the man. Oh, okay. oh no, it's no, James Franco. Um, that's terrible. Never mind. I totally backtracked. Uh, awful. Uh, that is because he is playing the real life mountaineer Aaron Ralston, who in 2003 was solo free climbing uh, somewhere in Utah and he got stuck and eventually had to eat off his own arm or no, he his own arm like his arm. whatever. It's <laughs> uh, not 28 days later. Watch the end of the Dude, movie. That's a different Danny Boyle movie. <laughs> um, and this is a movie about it. And because, um, you know, understandably it would be hard, a hard sell if it were just, you know, you and him and doing the whole, uh, all is lost thing of him just stuck there for 127 hours in real time, uh, eating off his own arm. They weave in his past flashbacks. It is all done in the frenetic style of Slumdog Millionaire and a style that you could see seeds of in, in train spotting in earlier films, but he really began to push But now he has Anthony Dodd Mantle from that relationship. Oh, she sure does. Um, and I just found it all... What's that phrase that... Uh, no New York Jew could ever convincingly pull off all something and no cattle, all hat, all and, no hat cattle. and no cattle. Yeah, that's that's what it's, I think of when I watch. It's pretty this movie. exhausting, and it's pretty I, hat. It's pretty hat. I don't know if that's because I've gotten older, or because that style has been imitated so much, or like I, the sheen of Slumdog Millionaire, which is maybe I liked fine. I, I don't know. I like, I found myself being like, just settle the fuck down, and it does after a while. Like you do get in there and you get the kind of the mounting tension of it, but it also felt kind of unbearable once that mounting kitchen did send in. I found it such a difficult thing to to willingly rewatch, which is probably why I haven't until So now. the excruciating part of 127 hours for you has nothing to do with a man stuck whose arm is stuck under a boulder and in just in excruciating pain, getting rained on, trying to drink as much water as he humanly can and then cuts off his own arm. Your problem is like MTV style editing to use an old <laughs> critique. Uh, <Danny laughs> now Boyle we're inside the camelback as he's sipping How urine, his own urine, into zoom the back to the truck. Where close the ups of every object. The... Yeah, yeah, kinda. Wow. I would be really into the how this movie's executed if it wasn't Danny Boyle. Like, mm. if this was like my fresh independent debut to cinema, just like somebody who had nothing, like, who was like, I got a man, I got a canyon, I got a couple cameras. I got, All you need like, to make let's, a movie let's, is like, go for a it. man, a canyon, and a camera. <laughs> exactly. Dar famously said that. And, uh, like, uh, yeah, just like if this was shot frenetically because it was so independent, it was trying to, like, make a name for itself, it makes sense. But as, like, a choice, like, I'm looking um, specifically off the Wikipedia page, but this quote's ridiculous. It's from Danny Boyle who says, I remember thinking I must do a film where I follow an actor the way Darren Aronofsky did with The Wrestler. So 127 hours is my version of that. No, no, it's not. I mean, I mean, I feel like, it's like it The Wrestler is probably another movie that doesn't hold up so well, but. Yeah, but also like that that's what 
what his version of following a character all the way through is basically using that character to go everywhere else but what the character is doing for the majority of this movie. And then I'd forgotten it ends, or the thing that motivates him to finally cut his arm off is he sees his future son? Yep. In a, like a vision? Yeah. The visions you know, are... Happens to the best of us. Very strange. And this movie is definitely co-written by Simon Beaufoy, who has done a lot of sentimental movies like Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, which came out the year after on 27 Hours. Um, I think he <laughs> I wrote Slumdog Billionaire. But, you know, he's like a British... He wrote Full Monty. He's like a British sappy guy. And here's this... Raw trapped Boyle's in the middle of nowhere. Guy, yeah, you know? I mean, the man made yesterday. I forgot about that movie. Um, yeah, that's his last yeah. movie. No, he he is, but he also made Trade Spotting. He also made Twenty Eight Days Later. Shallow Grave. Um, he has these. He has dementia. He does swing, and I like. I like Danny. No, I thought you movies. said dementia. He has dementia. <laughs> He's out of his goddamn mind. No. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated by Boyle. And Remember just, like, when he was his... going to make James Bond? And yes, even I want to see that No movie. Time to Die may not be a masterpiece. Uh, Jesus Christ himself came down from the heavens and intervened. <laughs> he is experimental. Whether the experiments work, that's for debate, and that's always interesting. I I in this examination of what I would consider inessential cinema, here's a movie that feels designed to be insignificant in some way to be. A it's really tiny little than... movie, not a big movie that we'll yeah. always remember. Um, and there are some amazing shots. Like, I really do love when Aaron is trapped right in the beginning when he first gets trapped and he's screaming out to try and find someone in the canyons. And the camera zooms not just up to the top, but keeps going and shows us the entire canyon and like using special effects to to heighten that emotion. I think that really works when when we're just like zooming around the canyon in fast motion or doing the kind of frame rate choppiness i don't know i i think it played better then because it's been wildly imitated since yeah um but he's playing he wants to know what the camera can do and he has to do everything here to kind of keep it moving you were trapped in a canyon yeah, I mean, you, yeah, see, well, you see his shitty digital camera, and you're like, okay, so th- that was th- oh, seven man. years earlier when this movie was made. Like, that's how far digital that camera took me back. Well, this had come in that time. I, I think a theme for this episode will be how, how long ago. It, yeah. it does take place in 2003, but I do think a recurring theme in this episode will be just how long ago 2011 feels. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. once we get to Limitless, we're really, we'll really have to talk about that. But yeah, the 2003 <laughs> Canon camera really zapped me back to working at Best Buy around the same time and being like, oh, wow. I wonder how much his memory card costs and it holds so few pictures. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> These days, yeah, though, let me I, tell you. The, the movie's set in the canyon. You can't escape that. And so the choice the story has to sort of make is what else is this going to be about? And it sort of ends up being about like some flashbacks to moments in his life he regrets as minuscule from like not answering the phone when his mom calls to like a girlfriend that he wasn't emotionally there for, Uh, which would all feel a lot more coherent if the movie didn't end with the actual guy smiling down on James Franco in a pool on a title card that's like, and now he always leaves a note. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> just like it's like the end of an arrested, arrested development. development. <laughs> yeah. And that's why you always leave one, a note. Yep. One, one thing that has aged well about this movie is that uh, the memoir that it's based on that Aaron Ralston wrote himself is still to this day called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, mm-hmm. which I respect. That's great. 
Why wasn't uh, the movie called that? Let me, I, I got to defend this movie just a little bit more because I think when it works best, it's actually an A.R. Rahman film. And this is basically a concept album that Danny Boyle is directing the music video for. And something that has stuck with me from this movie over the years is both the score and um, the song that he did. Oh, I'm trying, I, I'm pulling this reference out. Uh, I'm going to find it later. If I Rise, uh, that he Wow. That I sounds remember very that show much. existed. I do like that. A, I listen to that song uh, a lot. <laughs> I love what's it. The, why am I forgetting amazing. her name? What's the, what's the name of the the woman? Um, Enya. No, who you interviewed recently and has Diane Warren. Uh, yes, it sounds exactly <laughs> like the name of a Diane Warren. Song. If I rise, yes, A.R. Rahman. I'm sure. She, I think she may have actually. It got a it got a best original song nomination and lost to Randy it's a, Newman. It's a beautiful song. It plays for the end of the movie, and then I I actually love the moment, the triumphant moment of his escape. Um, and and that like fanfare. I think this is an A.R. Rahman film directed by Danny Boyle music video style and in that way i find it kind of triumphant still i <laughs> the first half feel- the middle is a little insufferable but by the end when he's cutting his arm off freedom yeah. how do we feel about james franco watching this i mean i think he's i was trying to decide if he's giving a good performance i'm trying to look I past mean- things and kind of take it at the value of the of the i film think the itself. smugness that dominated so much of so many of his performances, even before he was like an established creep, is mostly not in this. Um, which really, I really appreciate. I mean, this is the same year he hosted those god awful Oscars. So like, the this, smugness really, is everything like... in this movie, don't you think? That but Aaron thinks he like can a... go anywhere and do anything and doesn't leave to, he, need to leave a note. He does, but it's like this like innate confidence more than I don't know. I'm I'm having trouble. Like his interaction with with Kate Mara and um, Amber Tamblyn, like he seems more genuine than like. Hey, mm-hmm. look at me! I'm just this cool guy in the canyon. I think he pulls that off, and that kind of makes me root for him more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, I mean, he does come off uh, as like s- slightly undone by his cockiness, which is good for the character. Yeah. In this, so I don't think it's like yeah, I don't think it it it, it didn't great for me. The it just it just amplified things like in that middle part bad like when he's interviewing himself for the talk show and it's just like all right james franco yeah man he was oh that part was brutal the, yeah no that's terrible. for the people listening who were eight years old into 2010 james franco was everywhere just was absolutely he? everywhere it is yes it's impossible to express the he was, he was like taking grad school classes at four different colleges at once and like oh, making a bunch of like all these Faulkner movies on his own. I mean, he literally showed up to my place of employment at the Chelsea Apple store and hired my friend Dave right off the floor to go and do homework for him at NYU for several years. I'm sure I've told that story in podcasts in some way. shape, or form. I, I, so in, I don't recall in, that, but that's amazing. In <laughs> the year 2010, he played himself on 30 Rock. He was in, he played Allen Ginsberg and Hal. He was in Date Night. He was in something called Shadows and Lies. He was in Eat, Pray, Love. He was in 127 hours, and then in t- early 2011, he showed up in the Green Hornet and Your Highness, and then Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He was—he he, he was. Oh, I forgot he's in that. <laughs> yeah, um, dude, James uh, Franco cashed out for that short period. I know times have know. changed, and and he host—he was just maybe the all-time worst Oscar host ever, probably. Oh God, yeah, with Anne Hathaway. The year that he was nominated for 127 hours. It's crazy <laughs> that they did that. Uh, <laughs> oh, that back that's we we were seeing the craziness then. That's I watched those Oscars in David's apartment. Yeah, mm. I think 
Did we, we all? Did? did we all? Are we all there? Nah, probably not me. I didn't work. So. You, were, you, were, you were too cool. <laughs> I had too, too many things to do. You know? I was busy. <laughs> Uh, this movie does uh, not exist. Yeah. No one cares about 127 hours. It's never been talked no. about. Although I feel like it was part of a wave of of guy in one place movies. When was Buried in that kind of? Oh, Buried was not mm-hmm. long after this. Uh, um, uh, what's the Tom Hardy one? Um, Lock. Lock. That was Lock 2011. Is, uh, Lock Lock is for... strong stuff. I mean, I think Lock in our uh, in the content in the age where content is king, we're probably due for another slew of movies like this. I was just watching Hulu's new Chloe Grace Moretz movie. Mother Android, which is not a one location movie, but feels very much it's COVID. We have a million dollars. Let's go into the woods and shoot something. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's more or less par for the course of the time when it's more valuable for something to exist than to have any ambition or you know pressing reason to exist. And so uh, by those by those standards, 127 hours is a, a visionary work, but, um, you know, a, a dark precedent for some of the movies. Does it come. get points for being an experiment is it at least taking a leap is it trying to do something that you know or is it hack work i mean it's post slumdog millionaire so what is it accomplishing on top of that visually for you close-ups lots of them of camcorders <laughs> uh-huh. and water bottles and watches mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. beautiful rocks oh, all right all right i i give it a solid maybe but i don't i think the reason it reads as lesser is because it is a it's not a successful experiment entirely and it's coming off the back of i think like katie was saying or maybe you earlier someone who was saying the, uh, the academy recognizes you at left field and you feel like you you know have to do something either extremely weird or in the box and they'll nominate is... you no matter what sometimes yep so this is one of those. This one we're going to talk up to David. David was right at the time. We have Hell all yeah. come. We've all come around <laughs> to where he landed. And I think this is of of the four movies we're covering, the one that I had the strongest reaction to at the time. So, uh, no matter what else happens this episode, I feel a, a great sense of peace. <laughs> and now we will never watch this movie again. Seriously, no, yep. or, nor talk about it. I guess it, except for as part of our origin story. I guess it'll keep coming up. But uh, curse you, one hundred percent. No, let's let's let's. Let's keep Kevin Smith around for for a while. Yeah. <laughs> in another ten years, we'll revisit whatever is the thing that he <laughs> said that got us on hype. Absolutely, it does. But Limitless overall, not to get off track, uh, it is a Bradley Cooper performance movie. He is in basically every scene, and it's all about him following this through. The th- nice thing about Bradley Cooper is he's sort of effortlessly charming. Still, to me, I don't know if I've gotten sick of the shtick or if there is a shtick to get sick of yet because I haven't really absorbed that much Bradley Cooper. But it works, and because of that, you can see why people like him. And uh, he's a he's the um, his unsuccessful side only shows up long enough to uh, you know establish there is an unsuccessful side. I'm not sure if living in that character, I'd be able to believe Bradley Cooper as unattractive and unsuccessful and unmotivated. But, but in ter- it, it terms of last that long, so you can kind of yeah, in terms of a leading man. He really steps into that role and, uh, you know, kind of brings it to Limitless. Whether or not the material raises uh, Bradley Cooper to the level that he could have if he was working with something better is a question that you'll have to answer yourself after seeing Limitless. See Limitless in theaters this Friday. Uh, all right. I think it's time then to move on to my pick, uh, which is Limitless, the Neil Berger Bradley Cooper film about a pill that unlocks the potential of your brain. 
makes you super suave. You could learn languages. You could learn piano. You could write novels. Uh, and you could also uh, take out loans with mobsters and play the stock market and uh, plumb the higher echelons of finance and discover there are still criminals there. It's Limitless. It's a movie that is about uh, Bradley Cooper. Uh, look at the track. Dude. This movie <laughs> was legit popular. Uh, popular enough no. that like there's a TV show. There was a TV based show on it. There was a. Is it still uh, on? No, I think it lasted. I mean, two, if you if but if you a, make a movie, I mean, to this day, but it's not really so possible these days. But certainly ten years ago, if you made a movie that cost twenty seven million dollars and it grossed one hundred and sixty one point eight, it was de facto a thing. Like it would become yeah. something else. It would be you know uh, it, it would launch careers. As someone who yeah. Sorry. You can say to someone like, man, I'm having a good day. I feel like I took the limitless drug. People would yes. know what you mean. Like yes. there is yes. cultural currency to this That is movie. absolutely true. What I was going to say is as someone who occasionally checks what people are Googling, um, people Google, is the <laughs> limitless drug real? Like now, <laughs> they do it this year. Definitely. <laughs> it looks so appealing. We're still looking for the house. answers here. <laughs> but clearly they did not watch Limitless because it doesn't go that well for him. No, NCT, but like I would do it right. Like if you got I me mean, drug, like I wouldn't do all that. Whoa! Stuff. I would do it if right. you if you told me, wait, we got to go around gonna, the horn gonna, here. Would I'm you take the over... limitless drug? Would you take it? Would you take NZT? I mean, I basically have a prescription for the limitless drug. It just doesn't work as well as advertised. Um, but the uh, if you you know, I want to gloss over some moral impropriety in the middle section of this movie. But if you told me uh, similar to. You know, a less attractive, similarly successful version of Bradley Cooper's character in the beginning of this movie, and then told me that I could end up where he does, uh, and only a few people had to die. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. You want to be a? <laughs> you want to be a, a politician somehow? No, the, I would. I mean, at the end of the movie. I, I, I think that it, it is not a testament to his final IQ that, with that genius, he decides to become a politician. Well, the, uh, but, I found it so know. depressing that he just immediately jumps into Wall Street. And I wondered, like, how much of this is just like a post-recession thing being like, yeah, Wall Street bros. But like, this came out the same year that Occupy Wall Street really hit a peak. Like, how did those have, how did those coexist at the same time? Uh, I, this, this makes a lot of sense to me where it's like, if you want to see him as aspirational, then it's, you know, post Barack Obama 2008 election like what if politicians are good we don't know the nation seems to be thinking maybe this one's okay or it's Wall Street bros you know are the root of all evil and therefore I hope he beats Robert De Niro at his own game I think you could come out of the end of the movie with either of those things it 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 feels like so slick I know it's adapt adapted from a novel that I haven't read but even that novel, let me see. The Dark Fields is what it is. Yes. Uh, like Alan Bloom. Yeah, so it came out in 2001. So even the novel is after Fight Club. Something about this movie that feels very much like a Fight Club in the way that like Wanted felt like Fight Club. This idea of like you intensely focus on one male presence and uh, use his point of view to do like some crazy visual shit every once in a while where he sees you know, uh, stock tickers on the ceiling or uh, all the lights go gold or some shit. Or you have a woman uh, attack her pursuer by flinging an ice skating girl at his face. You get Iconic away with some scene. dumb shit. Iconic. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that scene, like I had not seen Limitless. So Dave and I did an episode about it. And it was kind of me interviewing Dave about Limitless and me talking about the Lincoln lawyer because uh, it came out at the same time. Uh, and I had just heard about the girl in the ice skate for so long. And wow, it lived up to the hype. It's so good. Yeah, that's the most logical way out of that situation, yeah, says only, NZT. Only possible option. I mean, the gash looks so bad, too, on the guy's <laughs> face after she picks up a little girl and slashes his face with her. <laughs> Her skates, and the afterwards, the little girl is just like, yeah, she's like, what happened? Yeah, uh, this is that's <laughs> well, actually my nightmare. It... I I hate ice skating, and one thing I I constantly think about is falling down and getting my fingers sliced off by people's skates, and that scene did not help my phobia there. I'm just like, they're very yeah, sharp. True. They are, and as you know, so maybe that would also, you know, the NZT would play into your phobia, and you would also attack people. Pers- pursuing you i mean if, you just yeah, saw fairness, she didn't just attack someone she defended herself yeah. with a little girl who was wearing with a little skates. girl with, uh, she happened to skates. be attached to the blade that yeah it, it is was anyone else sort of watching this in 2021 struggling to get over the bradley cooper of it all like just how i mean he effectively took the limitless pill uh, at some point, and you know, like maybe this movie is was made. yeah, because he made yeah, the I mean, words. This, Remember that movie that the, absolutely yeah. does not exist. I mean, maybe this movie was a documentary shot in real time, for all we know. But he um, was clearly itching. I mean, he gives his all to this movie. He gives his all to everything from the the the, the biggest Oscar bait to the lowest pieces of schlock that he's made. And I respect that for him. He's a very sincere actor type How many languages uh, does and filmmaker. In Eleven. He does. He does get to show off his French. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to save the language talk for Robert Pattinson, please. But uh, the. <laughs> Um, it, it's it's just you can feel him sort of bursting at the like clawing at the ceiling of this movie and like trying to escape and get into something better in a way that actually kind of works for the character he's playing that he's really slumming it in this and has the potential and the capacity to do greater things. Um, that that the kernel for a star is born. Um, you know, is 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 there inside of him and he just has to have the freedom to access it. Uh, it's a fun meta element in a movie that I think it, it also makes it more a product of its time, but not in an unpleasant way. I assume this is the first thing he's like did actively since the hangover hit big. Like you look at his IMDb and Valentine's Day, all about Stephen K 39 all come out around the same time. The A team is 2010. So maybe that is his post hangover thing or he signed under that at the same time. But like, this seems like the movie he made with Hangover Stardom being like, I'm going to star in this like mid-range drama, which like even then they weren't making that many of. But don't you, so he, he must have thought like, this was an his... Oscar bait, right? Like this was no, be a no, I don't think he thought that. I think he thought it was like a big leading man role that was like more dramatic than the Hangover. Like it gets him immediately out of like bro comedy zone. Hmm. Like he's still kind of, I mean, he, he's, yeah, still he gets looks to like go Riley Cooper, but like Robert Robert De Niro instead of a monkey. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a really logical stepping stone between you know Hangover Part Two comes out the same year in 2011, and then the next year Silver Linings Playbook. Like he's he's on his way toward where David's talking about that he wants to go. Hmm. I think he's definitely was still working for me at this point, and then this movie uh, is still working for me. I, I, I is think... Bradley Cooper not work not work for you anymore? Uh, how, I how can you believe... not think about Nightmare Alley during this movie? And and just uh, going. Like, again, Bradley Bradley Cooper worked for me in Nightmare Alley up until he got super noir. Uh, again, but that's a different a different topic. Most of the time, Bradley Cooper works for me. Um, but I think it was like, I, Silver Linings Playbook performance kind of grates against me, 
and uh so after that i always approached him sort of warily but he's 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 good at what he does so you made a star like lifetime yeah. pass Starsborn, licorice pizza he is good recent turns this i i like the yeah the weird broy feeling of it really works for me it's really fun to watch and it, and like the beginning reminded me so much of 127 hours where it starts like so frenetic and all over the yes. place and like the big city is crazy but there's like it's fun in this one like it's it's this is the most like 2011 a- movie that we watched yeah like because yeah. it like starts with him on the edge of a building and basically he's like i bet you wonder how i got here <laughs> oh the narration is under- so awful i never understand <laughs> why with the the infinite library of music uh, of all stripes that are available to, to people when they make a movie of the size why in that opening sequence when the camera pans up the building uh they are just and this is something you see to this day in, in nine out of ten studio movies they just play like this really basic generic chunky guitar riff that is mm-hmm. more about just telling you what kind of movie you're watching but it's just all of this real estate to have any sort of personality in it for not for free, but concisely in a way that um, you know you can add after the fact and and just will make the movie stand out and give it I some texture. It's just wasted. Answer. It's it's Neil Berger one hundred and one, but like it's, it's not even that. This uh, movie was made by Relativity Media, and Relativity Media and the whole thing behind that company that is now defunct um, was that Ryan Cavanaugh, who founded it, had an algorithm that could tell people exactly what. Like would make a hit, and I bet you that they use the same music and the same types of shots over and over and over again. In all of <laughs> like, the relativity media pan movies. up the building with yeah, the guitar. I wouldn't be surprised to know that's like that's part of the algorithmic success of of Limitless. And then you know what? He was right. This movie made a lot of money. It's like the one movie they made that hit, hit big. Yeah, that logo itself was a was a 2011 flashback uh, popping up at the beginning of that movie. <laughs> Uh, so we 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 like Limitless now. We all like I Limitless. I, I don't think I could say that I I like it because I'm with Katie that the beginning is really fun. Just seeing Bradley Cooper shift gears over and over and over again as he's as his brain is expanding and he's playing every note. Um, but then it's when it becomes a thriller and he's being chased by yeah thugs and I the whole tell De Niro you. stuff and the Wall Street bit. plot. Ugh. Yeah, I have no idea what De Niro muddy. Does in this movie. I could couldn't tell you. It's crazy that they made Silver Linings Playbook together the next year. Like that's such that's a weird double. This movie feels from 2005. Like Limitless feels older than much much older. I mean, I think it feels so old because if this movie were made today, it would be one of two things. I mean, most likely it would be Venom Three. It would be a series. (laughs) But if it weren't a series, it would also go directly to streaming. Um, And Hmm. they wouldn't really. It wouldn't really have the opportunity to pop. Not that it was such a great thing for the world that this did pop. I mean, whatever, the movie's fine. But like, um, and and it does actually get, not to get too deep in the weeds, but it does rather quickly and in the heightened language of genre cinema get to the discomfort of being dependent on any some kind of substance in a really real way uh, quickly, mm. which I appreciate it. But um, it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think like a movie like this would just be fodder uh, if it came out today, it would be on Hulu, you know, and uh, uh, it would be the it, limitless it would, TV series yeah. that they made. Yeah, but that's that's what it would be. I mean, more likely, but um, it's the kind of I mean, it's twenty seven million dollar movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would 
the kind of thing they don't make anymore. Another theme for this episode. 127 hours you could, you could make today and probably even get like a, a award season run in theaters. But um, the, these two movies, the ones we're talking about in the middle of the episode, feel very much like you could only make them on streaming. Okay, so now it's time for our review. We were hoping to have David Ehrlich back with us, but the Rangers have taken his night. And sadly, they have lost. But actually, good for us, because now David won't be at hockey games instead of podcasting anymore. Mm. So we'll have him back, as usual. Uh, but we all saw Water for Elephants together just a couple hours ago. And um, I watched you guys snicker aloud at least once in a part that we won't talk about for fear a of spoilers. Oh, there was one um, time where he's pointed out that Robert Pattinson's character was named Jacob that I laughed pretty loud. Yes, my first thing, I should just <laughs> say this up front. He plays a character named Jacob, and I no longer know what team I'm on. Oh, boy. I, just, I don't no, get There's it. one team. This was the most conflict-free movie in the team Jacob, Teen Edward. Oh, That's true. It's not hard to know who to root for. Okay, uh, what is this movie about? Well, Water for the- Elephants is based on a very popular novel by Sarah Gruen, I think is how you say her name. Um... It is, well, you start, there's a frame story of an old man wandering into a circus, and he tells this... It's possibly the most typical way of doing this movie. Yeah. Old man shows up at location that has some sort of historical or uh, cultural meaning to him, and then... It's it's in the book, and I really thoroughly expected them to cut that part out, but then they went and cast Hal Holbrook as old man Jacob, so there you go. It made it worse. And and he's talking to Paul Schneider, who I really like, and who... Yeah, he needs a better movie. What do you think? Anyway. What do you think the Paul Schneider role like read like? Like must be charming because only has five lines. <laughs> must <laughs> must, you must like him instantly. Our next film, which I, I who who technically brought this? Is this this one, David? Yeah. Hey, um, uh, I learned Patches just watched it for the first time for this episode. Never had, had and, never seen uh, this miraculous film that everyone remembers. Hadn't seen hadn't seen the ending. Uh, so has just been uh, nodding along to my murder for elephants joke for eleven years. Uh, didn't get it. Uh, yeah. I thought it was an Edison reference, uh, as mentioned. David, set yeah. up water for elephants. Uh, water for elephants, a movie that I keep calling like water for elephants for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like a- they, they don't give the elephants water, so it is like water, and it's, it's not true. water. It's um, true. I mean, it's more like. Yeah, I mean, they, there, there is a scene where they very explicitly <laughs> mention why the, the movie is called this or where the phrase comes from. But um, what, what a film. Uh, I have to say, just as a bit of preference, preface, that when I put this on tonight in preparation for this episode, um, <laughs> I put it on the couch and my wife, who, you know, around eight o'clock after getting to the bed, tends to these days retreat to her bedroom and play like a stupid gacha game on her phone or watch British Murders, sat there. It wrapped attention for at least 90 <laughs> minutes. Um, and uh, it, was, it was really nice. Um, Water for Elephants has enormous elephant-sized, they don't make them like this anymore, energy. Uh, it, is a, it is a period, a handsomely shot, well-furnished period piece starring movie stars, major movie stars, that came out in April of 2011 uh, it is adapted from a book, of course. This kind of movie, even in 2011, has no prayer of happening as an original concept. Um, I don't think anyone would even do, dare write it on spec. Uh, it's adapted from a novel by Sarah Groon, also called Water for Elephants, uh, and directed by Francis Lawrence of the of I Am Legend, but you know, more pertinently, um, the Hunger Games fame of Quarter Quell, you know, the yeah, origins of the Quarter Quell, bringing everything full circle. I guess the first Hunger Games hadn't come out yet. 
This was mm-hmm. like right before that. This is, I think, the movie he made right before it. It was a big hit, which didn't hurt his chances. Um, and it's basically the nightmare alley of its day. Uh, it's it's a movie about a kid running off and joining the circus, but darker. I mean, Robert Pattinson, it's the Depression. Robert Pattinson is a Polish son of Polish immigrants. His family's having a tough time and that their uh, time comes to an abrupt end. While he's in veterinary school at Cornell, he can't finish. His life has basically gone to pot. He... Uh, and I love, there's nothing better than like a solid as oak, well-crafted, you're in good hands period drama that within its first act puts you on an old timey train of some kind, uh, and does one better actually has like a long sinewy take moving through the cars of the train, um, from back to front. I mean, that is just absolutely my shit. Uh, but he falls in with the traveling circus one of many at the time, doing everything to calm their way into survival. Um, and becomes a run. geek. Oh, wait. No. <laughs> yeah, Robert Pattinson just ripping the heads up, chick. I mean, <laughs> later Robert Pattinson roles, it would not be at all. Oh, yeah. Robert uh, Pattinson. Yeah, yeah. Robert Pattinson he has starring in... Guys, yeah. if they made Nightmare Alley with Robert Pattinson, just in, like, the mind reels. He would have been yeah. great in that movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, this is passing the baton from Bradley Cooper and Limitless to uh, Robert Pattinson. But, the circus is run by a guy named August, who is played by a very Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, very the kind of performance he knows how to. Christoph yeah. Waltz. Um, between his two Oscars, uh, yes. and, and very much in the middle ground, you know, as narrow as <laughs> it has, is between Hans. He has Landa so many lines and, that just, uh, yeah. or I guess his voice is just the quotable part of Christoph Waltz. It's yeah, like you'll I mean, all of his performance. He's horse. like. It's the same as he does in Big Eyes. He made a you know, Christoph Waltz directed a movie called Georgetown that doesn't exist i saw it at tribeca where he plays sort of like the platonic ideal of this archetype that he's perfected um and he's really leaning into it with all he's got but anyway uh hard hard luck train circus thing but pattinson handsome polish boy is able to talk himself into a job because he knows how to work with the animals he falls in love at first sight with august's wife who is uh sort of the the prima ballerina of the company um, it's played by Reese Witherspoon. As a side note for posterity, we now have our Reese Witherspoon, which is a wreath with made up of photos of Reese Witherspoon up outside of our door. Okay. And Asa <laughs> has learned Reese Witherspoon. And so every day he wants to touch everything in our building, the one, the two, the three outside of every apartment. And this is Reese Witherspoon. And you got to touch <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. It's very cute. Um, but uh, Inherent Vice, clearly his favorite Reese Witherspoon movie. Um but yeah, and so it's basically about them just bumming around the country on this train, trying to keep the circus afloat. They get an elephant after the horse that Reese Witherspoon uh, uses for attraction dies, is murdered by Robert Pattinson, but euthanized, I should say. Yeah, a mercy um, killing. Yeah, mercy yeah. killed uh, against August's wishes. And they get an elephant, and in a very satisfying moment, a moment that, you know, I to this day find satisfying, or I should say the second time I ever watched this movie, which was tonight, the first time in 10 years since I saw it at a press screening, which is how long we've been doing this. Um, he discovers that the elephant speaks Polish. And that is how the breakthrough that, that allows him to exert some influence over the elephant and sort of align with him and eventually take down August and say lead a mutiny on the... Literally. Uh, under the mutiny under the big top. Uh, and I, you know, is this a masterpiece? No, but is it no. like as I said, like very, very like solid, comforting. Uh, 
comfort like yeah it's it comfort is a beautiful it's, it's, it's a beautiful it's beautifully movie. Rodrigo done. beautifully done Prieto shot this movie who shot has done the shit out of it uh, like 25th hour and all it of opens the, with uh, Hal Holbrook just giving you the full Hal Holbrook doing Paul, the Titanic all of the in there, I know, it's such a Titanic fired moment. from Parks and Recreation I mean like does <laughs> it it loses you know this it loses a little bit of steam I'd say in the middle of the second act that it never really recovers but uh maybe maybe a little bit the framing device at the end rebounds but you know, it's 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 straight down the middle, good old fashioned. You're in the hands of people who know what they're doing, entertainment, and we uh, don't get that a lot anymore. David, you are uh, echoing me from ten years ago, where I think you were not on the water for elephants episode. I was. I was, on it I was. Oh, not on the episode. I know. <laughs> yeah. I was on the the train. On the I was train. on the yeah, train, but not the, the water for elephants train. The cultural yeah. water for elephants. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think you were not on there. And uh, Patches and uh, Dave were both just like, "You like this movie?" I was like, "It's fine." It's the book, and they were uh, horrified by the fact that they could enjoy it. So now that you guys are old men, do you like it better? Nope, exact same complaints. <laughs> no, you no, got a potato-faced Robert Pattinson who hasn't <laughs> figured out what the fuck he's doing, and has zero chemistry with Reese Witherspoon, and that's the center of the movie. And so it's 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 a center that doesn't hold. So a lot of the times, I'm just watching predictable uh, shit about being in a circus or being uh living during prohibition and the most obvious things that could happen in either of those cases uh but absolutely is beautiful and i do love like with nightmare alley the times that we're hanging out in the circus it's just like the christoph waltz peeking with this stock character of takes it out on the animal which means eventually he's gonna try to take it out on his wife and you know we see that build um is uh such a plain menace i think especially after with christoph waltz basically being villains up until that point um that it like the the cool thing about like willem defoe's uh geek uh, obtainer in nightmare alley is that it's like you don't feel the knife go in and i feel like that would have been a little bit uh, more subtle, but I haven't read the book and I realize we're adapting a book. So a lot of the things that I might dislike might just be um, a director who isn't as uh, good at wrangling these, this particular set of actors or get providing them the direction they need to sort of communicate what it is. And there's a lot of like clunky voiceover, which I guarantee you is just like book lines that had to be put in somewhere. But I don't think either of those things necessarily helped the movie, uh, which really I could have forgiven a lot of it if I just cared about the relationship at the center of it. Mm. But I did say this really fun thing in the old podcast where that Robert Pattinson makes a face where he squints so hard, you think his forehead could maybe touch his chin. <laughs> and I, I'm very proud of myself from uh, a decade ago. Do you, do you guys because... think this is peak Robert Pattinson hotness? Um... Let me see. I mean, and, and you have to, like, I mean, certainly, uh, not certainly, but I, I mean, the context here is sort of many on looks in the Twilight, film, uh... because he, no, but like he in the was... later movies, he was playing a lot of roles that were uh, not designed to, you know, No, he's hot as Tenet. Tenet is the answer. Oh, Tenet, uh, yeah. yeah. Tenet, he's very yeah. sophisticated. Yeah, he's very attractive Tenet. But he has well, I mean... the sort of, like, young matinee idol gloss in this without the... Why a veneer that sort of saps I actually thought away Katie would from think, Twilight? Uh, Lost City of Z, Robert Pattinson. Would have been the he's hottest. not. 
He's that, like that's more unrecognizable. Of your type. He's a gigantic beard. I know you like. That. I I shamefully think he's hot in um in good time. So that's that's my cross. Wow. I know dirtbag Pattinson. Real dirtbag. Wow. Not my type. Okay. I don't know why it works. Interesting. I think he's a little too pudgy faced here. I, maybe yeah. it's youth. Maybe it's weight. I but think I think he gets better looking as he gets older, which is why it's so funny that he was such an idol when he was like eighteen. Yeah, this is definitely yeah. like. I'm trying to think of the kind of like Leo equivalent for Pattinson in this movie. Like, what is this straight down the middle? Is this Titanic for him? Or? No, it's the beach. Oh, you mean like in terms of his look, it's the beach era Pattinson. Uh, in terms of where this movie falls in his career, I don't know. But I just think like, this is I haven't seen Pattinson kind of laugh and giggle drunk in a movie. And he does that here. He's just like, have. He's like the nice boy, and he hasn't really played the nice boy. He's not good at nice relaxing boy. on no, screen. No, he's not a relaxed man. These days, no. Ever, or, or in, uh, uh, not in Twilight either. I mean, in Twilight, no. it's, that's the whole point. I, I, I'm not sure that the Batman's really going to give us much of uh, Yeah, the Batman. <laughs> it is a laugh Batman riot. only gets to be sad. But yeah, I, I like to see he, Pattinson loosen up here and like have a drink with Reese and dance and then giggle. But and he's not really good makeup. in this either. What? I mean, he's good in this? No, because the whole movie is walking this fine line between being comfort food and and it's it's not lethargic, it's not plotting, it's but it is like occasionally it does stoop. I, I don't know. It's not good enough to transcend how cookie cutter it is. Uh, and whenever things are just played a little too soft, like if Pattinson's not, I like when Pattinson's working with the animals. I like when he is romancing and googly eyed looking at Reese Witherspoon. But then there's certain bits where it like gets a, has to be dramatic. It has to be a good movie, and then you're like, oh, it's not. It's not. It's mm. not fulfilling drama. But it looks amazing, and I don't know what makes it comfort food. I guess that's what I'm struggling to put into words. Like what to David's wife's point, it's definitely watchable. But why? It's it's absorbing. It's solid. It's old fashioned Hollywood Looks entertainment good. that is actually like but what is made with Hollywood the kind of like. Is it? Is it? Just I mean, a- the period setting. The period setting certainly helps, um, and the you know the fact that it's so vividly realized and it doesn't have. I mean, it's very earnest about it. It doesn't have the sort of high goth you know gloss that Nightmare Alley brings to a similar milieu. It's, it's, it's matinee, just, uh, not. It, but it's romantic. It's romantic mm. in its conception. I mean, it's about. This this terrible time in American history. It it is unapologetic about how these men keep getting disappeared off this train whenever they offend the boss, and everyone is sort of there against their will, and nobody knows where their next meal is going to come from. And uh, it should be miserable, but it's so unabashedly romantic about this lifestyle, about uh, the kind of people that you would meet along the way, um, and everything to do with it—the sense of yeah. adventure, the riding the rails. I guess uh, we just what got Joe many... Biden in love with trains in this country. You know, it's like <laughs> Joe it's, Biden. Uh, it was working for We just don't get a lot of romantic <laughs> drama anymore. Is that yeah. is that yeah. it? Like what's the last yeah. time we just had a a romantic drama? Uh everything what is was on that Netflix movie is rom com. Stanfield with the fo- the photograph, is that what it was called? I didn't see it. Uh, that was romantic yeah. drama, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I do, like I do. COVID. I mean it was kind of the oh god, what is the Christian guy who writes all those like the notebook? Nicholas Sparks. Nicholas Sparks. Yeah. I mean, that's the the weird part is I'm I don't feel like I'm describing Nicholas Sparks brand when I say romantic drama in this vein, um, but I guess you're right. I guess what he does, you want counts. a little glossy. That's that. too sappy. Yeah, yeah. Richard Logravenese, who wrote the script, he does this. He he is a romantic. Yeah. Um, yes, I love you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a mo- it's a it's a movie and presumably a book about 
two people who love animals who are in an old-fashioned circus. Like, that's the bleeding heart setting that you could build an entire romance on. That I understand that. If it's pure, it's just, it's just too hokey for me. Uh, um, that's I, fine, I, but I think it's definitely the kind of movie that I, you know, like even more as a oh, as yeah. a saddled dad than I did as <laughs> a twenty uh, seven year old. Here's here's how I've grown. Uh, at the end of this podcast, I guess we used to do something like, "What's like your one sentence final word or something on it?" <laughs> oh wow, mine was "Don't see it." Now I think you could see it if you want to. It's perfectly fine. You are, you are formally permitting our audience to yep. buy a ticket, take the ride, spend you want to see Murder for Elephants. Sell tickets. If you, if you can buy a ticket for Water for Elephants, I'll be stunned. Can I share a few fun facts uh, from my, uh, not, I'm not going to call it research. Anyway, the elephant's played by Ty the Elephant. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it was the second oh, no. time Ty, Re- Reese Witherspoon, and Robert Pattinson had all worked on the same film, as all three had been filmed in Vanity Fair in 2004. Wait, do you think that Ty remembered? Uh, no, definitely. Elephants uh, remember everything. <laughs> I Never forget. Um, but also, Ty uh, was owned by these people called Heptropical They're Travel, the who are very controversial and had to rebrand in 2020 yeah. with a whole different name. So there's a whole controversy about Ty's role in the film. Other the, data uh, point. Oh, yeah, go ahead. oh, sorry. I was just going to say the Wikipedia page gets into it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Ty's Wikipedia page is a journey. But it does make the movie feel somewhat innocent in that, like, it was separate from these. Yes. Yeah. Ty died this year in uh, at age 52 in May. Uh, so there's that. The other oh, thing. Ty Memorial Quarter Quill. Um, you can all read about the author Sarah Grun's wild journey of uh, getting involved with this incarcerated man and trying to help get him free and like going broke and developing an autoimmune disorder in the process. There's a very long New York Magazine article about it that is fascinating. Um, last thing, I just took a few more notes from our episode. Uh, at this the episode about Water for Elephants in spring twenty. Uh, spring 2011. Uh, Dave tries to get everyone to watch Friday Night Lights, and uh, Patches says he's excited for John Carter. And uh, none of us can know Michael B. Jordan's name, even though he shows up on Friday Night Lights at the time. And then we talk about the help in some detail. And Dave, oh Dave, do you do you know what I'm? Did you listen and hear the part I'm about to say about the help? No, I did. I skipped uh, just to the water for elephants part. Dave said the help is the reason that he bought a Kindle because it had a pink cover, and he didn't want to get made fun of because I am quote unquote scared of urban youth. Yep, and. This is around the same time that some kids like push you in a snowbank and mugged you. So I feel like you had good reason to be scared of the kids in your neighborhood. Maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. No, Wait, where I, did I, kids push you into a snowbank and mug, mug you? Uh, when I lived in uh, Bedsty, oh. uh, I was walking home from my friend's place, uh, who lived in like uh, what I guess we now call East Williamsburg, and just decided to walk it because that's the kind of thing you could do with big headphones, and if you kept to yourself. And I made the mistake of answering a person asking for the time. And I went to look at the time on my phone and got uh, kicked in the back of the knee by his partner who came behind me. And they uh, jacked my phone. Would those kids have made fun of you for reading the help on the subway? Uh, No, there was also people. So I used to, my mom used to send me hats uh, from the National Western Stock Show, which is a thing out here in Colorado. Uh, But they... um, there's a stall that sells bull semen, so you could propagate more cows. Mm-hmm. So she used to get me a little beanie that said Universal Semen Sales. <laughs> and one time I was wearing that hat and I had like a lollipop on uh, my mouth. 
and uh, was called out for several stops on the M train uh, by large groups of youth. <laughs> I really like youths you, in their groups. you need to move back to New York just so you can complain about the youth. I could complain about the youth anywhere. I was complaining about the youth today in our G chat, and it's just like That's COVID's true. on. Well, Why yeah, are you COVID, getting drunk and make it out in the streets? COVID gives a whole new dimension of of being mad at the youths. I That's mean, true. being on the subway and seeing all these kids who, uh, although the guy, the guy, there's a guy on my way to the Matrix the other night who was like, got to be in his fifties, who was sitting down next to me had his mask completely pulled down and was playing an iPhone game at full volume uh, yeah. with no headphones. And I was like, you are just a perfect storm of, so of obnoxiousness. Anyway. <laughs> Neither in well, the kids are, are not the only problem. Water for elephants is apparently very pleasant and doesn't make me want to complain about the kids. Uh, just, you know, other things. You have my permission to watch it. Now, are you, are you comparing movies like... I mean, give, what's a what's a movie that's coming out this summer that isn't based on something that anyone's ever heard of before? Huh? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so well, that's the, that's you know the outgrowth of the year now is that the one huge original tentpole that we have for the summer Super Eight is, is which channeling, is on, like, which is stuff. effectively based on something. Okay, well, okay, Hannah, a movie we've talked about on here, which is an original movie, something that's not based mm-hmm. on harking back to anyone's childhood. Are you saying that people look at that and they're like, "Oh my god, that's terrifying! I would never eat that. That's so weird. I want to eat the fried okra that is." Uh, they want the four. comfort food over something that could potentially be dangerous, especially when we're throwing out things, you know, when you have to spend the bucks to go out to the theater or something. I think nostalgia ends up playing a big part in, in making our decisions whether we want it to or not. I see it as more of a danger in... And it makes us, yeah, or it makes our vision narrow. I don't want this to be too much of an outgrowth of my response to last week's film, X-Men. But I, I think that <laughs> you're going to be talking about X-Men danger, like danger. <laughs> no, I think the danger doesn't lie so much in what people choose because you know people, you know, we talk about what people choose to seeing the commercial viability of all these things, whatever. Uh, it's a much more complicated matter than nostalgia. For me, where nostalgia becomes a, a dangerous issue is how people respond to that film once they have seen it, mm. uh, and you know how much the nostalgia fuels their critical reaction. Sure, because that is going to perpetuate what gets gets made next. But, uh, and what the available options are. But if are we're in, in a world where we want to make films, original films, that people want to see, you know, we talk a lot about, is nostalgia dangerous to filmmaking? Well, it might be the thing that gets people to see your original film, too. Wait, it is in the case of Super okay. Which, I don't, what? I, I, just, I don't think that nostalgia, it's an incredibly, and I don't think you were saying this necessarily, I'm mm-hmm. just going to say that, to say that nostalgia is in and of itself a dangerous thing by definition, is a completely ridiculous statement. But but there are people who will say that. Yeah, well, those people are wrong. <laughs> I mean, like those. Uh, all right. That brings us to our final film, which is Super 8. Super 8. I feel like Patches is the person that hasn't talked yet. I mean, Super I, 8, I definitely Patches. Talked, but uh, yeah, I, I picked Super I meant 8. I set, set up a movie. I think I, I was extremely excited to go back and, and watch Super 8, mostly because I think we spent the last 10 years or so bemoaning Spielberg pastiche, or like what that means has uh, impacted so many of the filmmakers that are coming up today. Abrams being a little older by that time, but I'm thinking of Colin Trevorrow. We just had a whole new Ghostbusters movie that people were like, wow, it's so Spielbergian. And then another faction of people being like, actually, did Super 8 convince us that Spielberg 
had this kind of like rural suburbs thing going on when he only made <laughs> yeah. movies in the California suburbs. Why do people think driving through cornfields with lens flare is a Spielberg thing? It might be a Super 8 thing. Close Encounters um, has some cornfields? Yeah, a little, yeah okay. I'll, I'll give you. Well, that's still California. No, I think you're wrong. Yeah, I might be. <laughs> and then they go through the desert to get to Devil's Power. Um, yeah, I know, yeah, I know that. So maybe Super 8 has a greater legacy, and I wanted to suss that out with all of you, but mostly get uh, at some point during this conversation, Katie, to just really pop off on uh, male millennial nostalgia or Gen X nostalgia <laughs> for Spielberg and like what this pastiche means and when, if it is ever effective. Um, and, and if anything was going to be effective, it was probably going to be Abrams trying to do it and, and doing it here in, in Super 8. And just to recap, if you have not watched this movie, in a little bit, it's it's centered on a group of friends. Uh, let's call them the Goonies. I don't remember if they have a, a name, but we'll call them the Goonies. Um, and the main kid is Joe Lamb, who's played by Joel Courtney, who has uh, made the leap from child actor discovery by J.J. Abrams in Super 8 to... He's the he's the male lead in the Kissing Booth franchise on Netflix. So oh, is he really? He's doing stuff, yeah. He's, That's uh, lucrative, I'm he's sure. He's kind of made it. He's hot on Instagram, for sure. Um, we would not have thought <laughs> oh, of him at all in the last 10 years. And he probably has a million Instagram followers. So that's he how he looks like works. every other kid on who was on, like, Teen Wolf, but, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, he's a good looking kid. Yeah. He grew and he's doing just fine. But, um, in this movie he's 14 and he just lost his mom in a, uh, I don't think it's a mining accident, but it's some kind of, uh, blue the, collar uh, factory. The, yeah, some kind yeah, of factory, like a steel like, work, steel plant. Yeah, uh, yeah like a steel you know, beam falls on her, and she. I can't she dies. remember if it actually takes place in West Virginia. I know they shot it in West Virginia, but you know the vibe. Um, I think it's like Pennsylvania, maybe. That makes sense. A lot of oh, probably around Pittsburgh if it's steel. Um, yeah. But anyway, his his mom dies, and it upsets him and his dad, played by Kyle Chandler, who's the uh, sheriff, fish deputy guy, policeman. He's a cop fucking cop um yeah he's deputy and uh they're they're coping uh, and the way that joe is coping is by making super eight films with his buddies uh this is definitely jj abrams and i believe michael giacchino who scored this film was one of abrams pals back when they were kids making super eight films and this was his ode to making super eight films because they're making a zombie movie and then one day when they're shooting it a train just fucking explodes off the top of the tracks. Uh, and Hell there's yeah. an alien inside. And so are the pieces of his spaceship with look like Rubik's cubes. And watching that scene again in Super 8, I'm like, man, I think we spent a bunch of time watching like ARG clips of this movie. There was like a Super Bowl teaser trailer that had maybe 15 seconds of footage where if you looked at the Super 8 lens around the trailer, you could get clues to the website that would show you more about the alien spaceship and i'm like we waste so wow. much time yeah. in abrams's is, fucking mystery box what are you doing to us, this man? is directly post post cloverfield yeah. Yeah. So, just make your I mean, goddamn movie he is still trying to replay that game that cloverfield magic um and you know good on him for trying and he did in but, cloverfield uh, paradox as we know of course as we all remember the magic <laughs> of having to stay up until two in the morning after that fucking super bowl and writing about the movie. <laughs> yeah. um yeah i mean this is definitely the apotheosis of that i mean this is this is full-on 
um, but it's not. mystery box with nothing inside. It's not supposed to be. I mean, it's not supposed, it's supposed to be. To be but e. I think this is a it's case supposed where to be close encounters. It's supposed to be Spielberg. Venom style. The marketing or like the, the the foreknowledge of how this movie would be presented to the world uh, overtook and corrupted the wow. idea of what was in the movie. Um, mm, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I don't, especially because there was a lot about like. What does the monster look like? They're not going to show it in the advertising. And the movie itself, in a lot of places where it could be more dramatic to show the monster, uh, really shoots around it in a Jaws-like way. And then when the monster shows up, it's like, that's the Cloverfield it's monster? Right, I know. Uh, exactly. I just, and I don't really, I just don't really care about little kids running around with a fucking monster. Like It's the same reason why I'm allergic to Stranger Things. Well, I mean, Stranger I, Things oh. makes this almost impossible to see yeah. without thinking of Stranger Things. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, I couldn't get through the pilot of Stranger Things. Like, this is this is just not my cup of tea. I remember enjoying this movie well enough. Um, it does feel, you know, the, the magic of Cloverfield for me is that even once the monster is seen in all of its glory, you are still sort of tingling with with mystery when it's over. There are still so many things that you are more excited to explore once you've seen the movie and not simply because like it ends with a URL like that one horror movie did. I mean, like it, 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 it's sort of opening up this world to you and making you interested in mythology and this, you know, it doesn't have that kind of runway. It doesn't have that, that kind of depth to it. And obviously, you know, there's, it, it doesn't there's have, no you know, depth. Cloverfield is, <laughs> Cloverfield is, is paper thin, but it has enough intrigue to sustain that this goes for, you know, more, uh, deeper rooted Americana and trying to tap into that the classic Amblin vibe, but none of the characters are really working for me. Um, I El Fanning makes an impression. That one kid who looks like Tom Petty, and they point that out in This Is Forty, uh, you know, does his thing. But uh, yeah, it's just like there isn't a lot under the surface of its nostalgia. And once you learn every detail about what's actually happening, I find it less interesting than it was before. Yeah, but really, what before I rewatched it. And even now, having been like two weeks out of rewatching it, the movie dilates in my mind like immediately. It's like, there are kids making movies, one of them's sad. The train crash in my mind happens like right at the beginning. And then like a yada 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 over the middle stuff. <laughs> All the bombs go off and then the alien launches into the sky. It's like even the subterranean stuff where he's rescuing people and doing all that, it fades from your mind because... There was no purpose to doing it. Well, yeah, it's a yeah. lot of running location to location, location to solve nothing. It just all feels like yeah, everyone's a movie, fine. right? It feels really manufactured. I was thinking a lot about what what is the fundamental difference between Super 8 and E.T.? Why does E.T. really work and Super 8 doesn't? And it's because Spielberg starts with a family. He starts with, and it's shot very sparsely, I think. Um, even when the spaceship comes down, reserving spectacle as much as possible. And I think that's Spielberg's genius often. I mean, certainly Close Encounters does this too. It's all about flashes of, of spectacle and then home life uh, and, and erratic home life. Um, it, when we go to the house that uh, in, in Close Encounters, just like junk everywhere, it just looks like shit. Everything looks terrible. Um, and here, everything is so manufactured. The the lens flares, every, all the camera moves. Um, this is, I don't know what, I don't really get Abrams as a director. He's a he's a producer and he's a manufacturer of of movies and everything feels like a movie. It's such a strange film because it, it all has this backlot feel even though they went off to West Virginia and shot this. It's just like it's too perfect, right? Everything is a clone yeah. of the, another moment. 
There's a, yeah. there's a ton of telling and not showing too. Like, especially with the family stuff where you get the funeral at the beginning and there's actors literally being like, well, he just doesn't know how to be a dad to that kid. I don't think he understands him. You're like, okay, great. Now uh, that, that's all you're going to give us for yeah. the characters for the entire movie. Not only for the characters, but for the alien as they discover dead scientist tapes that he made. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Dave. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just like, this, this the alien design is very much of a piece with Cloverfield and that, that era. And the Cloverfield monster, I think, is a successful, really successful version yeah. of a lot of the alien CGI design we, we've seen over the last 15 years. But what are some of the movies recently, and I know there were a few, where it felt like the alien design was, was actually breaking out of that generic sort of like gloopy gray war of the world super eight cloverfield mode i feel like there was some but i can't remember what interesting looking aliens i don't know the first thing that came to my mind was actually a robot it was just tars i'm like that's tars breaking. that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> breaking from sci-fi tradition that's breaking Fucking iconic tars but yeah. what surprised me so much re-listening to it, and I, I remember this some, I was so excited for Super 8 based on the trailer. Like, you guys remember that trailer that had like a James Horner song I, in it and I, the kids on the bikes? I do, because I still have the track downloaded to my Apple Music <laughs> because you were obsessed with it. And I'm like, well, I couldn't even find it streaming at that point because music didn't work like that in 2011. No. Yeah, I was downloading single tracks off Apple or off iTunes. And you were still paying a dollar to make them your ringtones. Yeah, (laughs) I can still like sing it in my head. Um, And like, I remembered that, but I have become so allergic to all the Amblin nostalgia since then. And like, I guess it was Super 8 that burned me and kind of taught me that like, that's not enough to to base a movie on. Um, And so I was so bummed out for myself in the past that like I had such high hopes for it and uh, learned that way that pastiche is not enough to is there a film feelings of childhood that has recaptured the Amblin fear feel over the last like 10 or even 20 years predate Superbait like who everyone's chasing Spielberg everyone's chasing Amblin who has done it I can think of one movie and I'll wait to say it unless you guys I really hope you're not going to say Cop Car by no, John Watts Definitely not Okay oh, <laughs> I like, I like Cop Car for different Henry. reasons if you like cop car, you have blood on your hands. Um, Damn. The uh, I mean, I feel that way about fucking Aaron Sorkin's movie, uh, Molly's Game. So you know, we all we all have our fair, sins. Fair, fair. Um, uh, we yeah. What Who movie? I I, have, gets, I mean, I think yeah. Stranger Things is the real answer. Like, no, I don't it's know. Definitely if, not. I, I I watched the first season of that show and nothing past it. But like, it has certainly no, like, like, taken maybe, the mantle. That only maybe like hunt for the will like hunt for the wilder people. Ooh, that's a good answer. Um, my like my that. thought would be Pete's Dragon. Oh sure, mm. the remake mm. by David Lowery, I think, gets it. Uh, it's all it's ground level until it's not, and it needs to be in the air. You know, um, I love. Do you think that movie. Super Eight would be a better movie if it wasn't trying to graft on all this Amblin-y stuff? I think. It, I think yeah. Super Eight could be a better movie if it was the mom who was alive and the dad who died, mm. and that somehow there was able to be a connection there. Because part of the distancing thing about this movie, as Patches was pointing out, is that it doesn't dig deep enough on the family. It separates those characters basically anytime it can, because the dad needs to run around and do cleanup, and the kid needs to not be safe because he needs to solve the alien mystery. But it's like them connecting is at the end, and they only have like one stern conversation, and it's not about the mom, really. Yeah. So... It's it's sort of mishandled emotionally, and even Kyle Chandler, who could usually like sell crap to me, I think is having trouble 
because he's meant to be giving, I think, what we used to call Spielberg looks. Uh, but there's no oh, character Spielberg to sort of back face. It up. Holy crap! I hadn't thought that's a, that was a Matt Patches no. special. I hadn't thought about that in so long. Propped up Patches, by and, Patches like invented the Spielberg face. I feel like you know. Um, I'll, 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 I want to put this in the history books, though, David, because you and I had a conversation about doing. We were talking about Spielberg, and I think you were going to do something for UGO. And then yeah, and the fucking ran, like, CMS was like, I needed, I, was like, I need to go to I'll night school for like, <laughs> I need to like go to night school for two months to learn how to use the CMS. It was insane, oh, it was and uh, and I was like, you know what, this isn't worth it. <laughs> Life went on, and like, Matt Patch can just do it. But uh, I definitely thought of of Matt when my son began doing his first Spielberg faces. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the end all those shot, the end shot of Super oh. Eight is like. That, that, that's why the movie exists. It exists to do Spielberg, Spielberg face on Spielberg Joel Courtney. And that's why the movie uh, sucks because it's like Abrams is a New York City kid. He has nothing. This movie is not personal at all. And I think that's why it's so infuriating. Even looking back now, I just, well, I don't think Abrams That's can a put limited him... definition of what's personal and what is it. I mean, I well, think I, ascribing a movie as personal is always a bit of conjecture, but I mean, the, the, he just uh, has nothing in common with this, with this character or this world, or I don't know. I just, it didn't feel, I don't feel like Abrams can reveal himself. I think he can only play games. I'm now galaxy braining and thinking about his other movies, but he hasn't really given him a chance to do that. Maybe he has a lot in, in common with Ethan Hunt uh, or Ray. I, I don't know how he feels <laughs> about that. Maybe those are personal films, but like this was his shot to do something personal. Sorry, uh, you know, his partner all those, was uh, also killed by a mini bomb yeah. that was shot up her nose. <laughs> there um, you go. All those don't look up character posters. They're all Spielberg face. I didn't, I didn't put it together until now. Oh, dear Timothy God. Chalamet giving Spielberg face. That's what it's Do all about. Do you think about. that's the direction that the, the photographer or photoshopper who invented that was, was giving everyone? Probably. Do Spielberg face. But you can do also, Spielberg face. Uh, Adam McKay wishes he could do Spielberg face uh, in real time. Yeah, I mean, you can Spielberg definitely direction. see, even in those, like, Mike, Mike, Mark Rylance and Jennifer Lawrence are pulling it off, and everyone else is, like, not quite there. Mark Rylance is a brilliant actor, but probably should be on trial of The Hague for his performance in Don't Look Now. <laughs> wow. Um... Wait, I had another fun fact on Super 8, which is that the mom, seen only in flashbacks and in video, is played by Katrina Belf, currently in Belfast. That was her first movie role. Wow. Would we wow. say currently for a movie that blew out of theaters in about eight minutes? I mean, it's still a movie that exists. That is her <laughs> most recent movie. Wait, Belfast uh -huh. is not in theaters right I'm now? I'm sure it is. Oh. But yeah, it's got to be there somewhere. But it, 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 it uh, might be. You could definitely rent it, though. Yeah. Uh, there's also an excellent line in our Super 8 review in which uh, I don't know what the context was, but Dave says, David, don't talk over the pot, plot description with your nonsense jokes. My mom is going to be get so mad. Mm. <laughs> she, would. she would. Little has changed. Did we like this That's movie true. before? Uh, Padges, you were you really liked it and you couldn't really? believe how annoyed I was about it. And I think everyone right. else was more in the middle. I don't. I hadn't seen change. it. I believe. Oh, you hadn't seen it. That's right. It was still in the age of Dave. Didn't always see all the movies. Mm. I mean, we're still we're still in that age from time to time. No, but now we're in the age of yeah. Being well, seeing all the movies. Dave is, is now. I get up. screeners. Yeah, I got. I get screeners, and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Don't have kids. I got a lot going for me now. Me. <laughs> Dave's on top of the world all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm. Uh, let's let's keep doing more quarter quills. Yeah. Uh, would we tell anyone to watch Super 8 if they weren't around? Katrina Ballfast. I would say Ballfast. don't watch Super 8. Yeah, I don't know if there's, like, if you want a better J.J. Abram movie, there's definitely that. If you want a better Alien movie, there's definitely that. If you haven't seen E.T., There are so many Spielberg movies, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So, like, yeah, I can't think of a reason that Super 8 would be uh, essential to, for anybody to watch. Ouch. Yeah, no. Yep, well, sorry, J.J. Abrams. Go, go reboot a Star Wars in your future past. Uh, uh, all right. All right. When I Google Spielberg face, I get a uh, video by Kevin Lee. That's right. Which I believe was released in 2011. Adapted, yeah. He adapted the article, basically. With your permission? No. <laughs> but he does credit Well, it. He credits the article. He's okay. a good guy. <laughs> Go watch Voyeur or whatever he's working on uh, on Netflix right now. Oh, is he on Voir? 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 Voyeur? Voir? Is Voir just the Hans Zimmer, Brahm? Voir. Voir. Uh, all right, I think that's gonna do it for this uh, 19th quarter quill fighting in the war room number 375 and this year of 2021's fighting in the war room podcast uh, we might be if, if you recall one of the top 10 best podcasts of this year who could not uh, recall we, we did it we did it we did the year Wow. Uh, so make sure to join us uh, next next year, which I, will include our top ten episode yes. for sure. Yeah, and we Matrix need to talk. That so people don't think we bailed on it. And Matrix talk and more movie talk because stuff's coming out. We haven't talked about Liquor Pizza yet. We haven't talked about the Lost Daughter really. We got we got stuff to get into. We didn't talk don't, haven't talked about Don't Look Up and all the Spielberg face. I I do have to sneak in a quick note that the Lost Daughter fucking rules and uh everyone should make a point to so watch january that. is gonna be catch-up month for us as we lead into mm-hmm. all the award movies award season up this uh filling up january yeah guys we're in a real dark period for me like dr strange and the multiverse of madness is until july Dave, what am i gonna do dr morbius adjacent hey, to the spider-verse oh, uh, is coming in january I, I got really good news for you parallel mothers by Amoldavar, that's a multiverse movie but oh, hey. by uh celine chiama that's a multiverse movie oh i can't wait uh, for i don't think that's to... a multiverse movie wait. as much as the time travel movie have you seen Pe- Pe- petite maman dave i have oh, yes yeah i was just gonna think but i would like that fucking the i mean on a more serious note uh at least a more you know sincere note because those other movies are not actually multiverse movies. The Daniels new movie, yeah. uh, everything, oh, yes. everywhere, all the time, whatever it's called, looks fucking amazing. And that I just, is a multiverse. Twenty twenty two year of the multiverse. Uh, yeah. And I just went on the A twenty four shop and spent a dollar ninety nine to order everything, wow. everywhere, all at once. Googly eyes, and they have arrived. And they're in my hand. You can hear them crinkling, oh, and I God. cannot oh, wait God. to put them that on everything. Real ASMR. Yeah. So as you could hear, we're much more excited about 2022's uh, movies we get to talk about uh, than we were about talking about 2011's movies. Sorry, but, we but had a we're good getting time. better. I thought it was uh, yeah. a fun look back. Sometimes it's worth going it, down the list of movies from a year you barely remember and see what actually happened. That's why, yeah, you, should, absolutely. That's why you should watch a movie like Super 8. Not on purpose, but draw it out of a hat sometimes. Yeah. yeah, be like movies you don't watch but might own or <laughs> might have remembered at one point. Uh, all right, guys, a, until... When you have archival audio of you talking about that movie, that's very good. Oh, yeah, that is that is very helpful. Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> for the last time, yeah, for the last time in 2021, tell the people who you are. We're going to start with Matt Patches. I'm Matt Patches, deputy editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And remember, we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com, 
I don't know. I, there might be that last week of December where we don't put out an episode. It would be a great time to go back and actually listen to old episodes. Old Quarter 12. And David Erling. Ooh, yeah, we're doing the, the special uh, Quarter Quell setup from Dave here. Um, I, uh, I appreciate it. I was just you know, waiting for, for my spotlight. Yeah. Um, I what, what do, are we just saying the usual things? I was to- tuning out when that was yeah, yeah. I was just yeah, we need to where you are. Water for elephants again. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's happened in Water for Elephants? That's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, that elephant gets its water, baby. Uh, the, what do I say? Yeah, Twitter, David Ehrlich, uh writing about the Matrix on IndieWire. More importantly, you can find all of us on iTunes. Fighting in the War Room. Make that your New Year's resolution for 2022, guaranteed to be the best year ever. Uh, nothing will go wrong in it, especially if you go on iTunes and leave us a review at Fighting in the War Room. We'll read it live on the show. It'll be great. And Katie Ritt. Uh, you can find me at Vanity Fair and on Little Bold Men, uh, where we're doing <laughs> 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 uh, Little Gold Men, we're doing a West Side Story flashback uh, over the holidays. You can listen to that. Um, and on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter, F-I-T-W-R, where I would really love to hear anyone's memories of any of these movies that we talked about. Yeah, especially if they're good ones. Or, I, I would be very interested. We have an in email. And any, they could send them there, too. Uh, that yeah. was, that's not on my list of things I have to talk about. Oh, that's true. I'm interjecting because I don't is... know if it's on anyone's list. It's mine. Oh, it's on shit. my list. I'm so sorry. After I stopped my Lost podcast, I've been looking for something to do at the end of this podcast. and I finally have it. I get to plug the email. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You'll find me on Twitter at DA7E. And you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. And there uh, we could also accept your screenshots of your international reviews if you're helping us worldwide. Uh, So yeah, until the new year, be safe out there.